It's my privilege to introduce our keynote speaker this morning for our missions conference. Dr. Nathan Smith is the senior pastor of Heritage Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he has served since 2012. Before that, he had a number of other roles. And, uh, but he, uh, while born in Houston, he grew up in Tanzania, and he has a heart and a passion for missions. You're going to hear that this morning. We had the privilege of having him speak to our missionaries last night at a dinner, and I can tell you that he understands missions. Uh, he loves missionaries, and he has a deep love for our God. So we're so privileged to have him join us this morning. If you would, please welcome Dr. Nathan Smith. Well, it is a joy to be able to be with you this morning, and you have a wonderful church. Just being able to meet many of you and hear your stories is truly a joy. And uh, I also heard a little bit of Swahili in one of the readings, so a little bit of Swahili uh, brought much joy to my heart. Uh, if you would open with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17. I was born in Texas, grew up in Tanzania and Kenya, East Africa, came back to the States to attend the U.S. Air Force Academy, and then God redirected my heart, and my wife and I uh, decided to go as missionaries to Morocco, North Africa, where we have just a passion for the Arab peoples, and yet God once again redirected our hearts. I've been serving as senior pastor at Heritage, where I love to be able to unpack God's word and also to be able to mobilize Christians to the nations. We are living in one of the greatest opportunities in history for the gospel to go forward to people around the world. And as I was thinking and praying about what to share this morning, John 17 really is a passage that is near and dear to my heart. Now, before we go there, I'd like to share an illustration with you that my church often teases me about because I love sailing ships. Sailing ships uh, dominated really the seas for a better part of a thousand years, especially from 16th to the 17th and 18th centuries, and probably no ship was more famous during that time than the HMS Victory, 101 first-rate ship on the line, that when it showed up, it instilled fear in their enemies. But more than anything, these sailing ships were commissioned, built for a purpose, to be emissaries of their regents. They bore the flag, the name, the authority, the glory, of the kings and the queens that sent them out across the oceans. They were built in order to be ambassadorial, to, to conquer territory, but again, to bring the name of their regent much fame. Now, ships built for a purpose are not much good just sitting in dry dock. Now, dry dock is a place of safety. It's a place where they are kept neat and clean, where they are repaired. And yet, ships were not built to sit in dry dock. They were built for the open ocean. Thomas Aquinas famously said one time that if the ship, captain's priority is the safety of his ship, then he will never take the ship out of port. And one thing I find is that in the church, and I, and I praise God for, for churches like this that have a heart for the world, but I find that we have many Christians whose ships of life are sitting in dry dock. They're clean. They're safe. But you see, you were built for a purpose. You were built with your giftings and your abilities, your strengths and your weaknesses, the experiences that God has given you, your cultural background, your ethnicity. All of these are rich parts of your identity that God has specifically given to you and no one else. 
Are you using it for his glory? Are you ready to go out onto the waters? You say, well, there's storms out on those waters. Yeah, it's not an easy path. But are you willing to set out and sail for the glory of your king? This morning out of John 17, I would like to challenge you that you've been commissioned by the king for a purpose. John 17 is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture. Now, the joke for the preacher is that what is the, the, the favorite passage of the preacher? It's the one he just preached on. John 17, however, is unique in scripture because John 17 is the longest recorded dialogue between two members of the Trinity found anywhere in scripture. I'd like to explore that a little bit. Because in understanding the Trinity, we understand a little bit of the uniqueness of our God, even as it pertains to mission. Do you remember Matthew 28, Jesus gave the commission to disciples and he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, say it with me, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we have a Trinitarian formula here that sets our God apart from other gods. And in understanding John 17, we, we, we listen in to a prayer that Jesus prayed to his Father that overflows with affection, that overflows with a sense of mission. He's praying over them that they would remember that which is most important that they would be kept from the evil one, that they would remember that God is going to bring about victorious mission, and there's great confidence in that. And we see the Trinity working together for the good of his people and for the glory of God. Now Jesus is just the night before his crucifixion. The Last Supper has just happened, and he's leaving Jerusalem, coming down across the Kidron Brook and up to the Mount of Olives. He's on his way to Gethsemane. And somewhere along that path, before he gets to the Kidron Brook, he lifts up his voice and has this glorious prayer that he wants his disciples to listen in on. And he wants us to listen in on it. So together, let's listen in on this prayer. I'm going to read John 17. I'm going to read the entirety of the passage. I believe that there is great power in being able to hear the word of God read. And let's listen to this sacred text and listen to the Father and the Son commune on behalf of you and me. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, so keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Pray with me, please. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would make these words live to me as I preach them, and that you would make these words live to my brothers and sisters as they hear them. May we be challenged and put into practice that which we learn so that you might be glorified. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we think about missions and we think about John 17 and this rich prayer, there is a lot here that we're not gonna have time to unpack in its beauty and its glory. But I wanna ask five questions that should guide how we look at mission and guide how we look at obedience as Christians. Before we go into the questions, I would like to ask us a simple question, that is, what is the center or what is that guiding star that governs the course of our life? When we think about ships sailing across the ocean, for thousands of years they have used the stars to guide, and one star in particular, the North Star, Polaris, because of the way it sits above the north axis of the earth, it doesn't move. And so ships use that fixed point in the sky to guide themselves so that they do not run aground or do not come off course. If you guide yourself by one of the lesser stars, the ones that move, even though they might be close to the central star, no, those will lead you astray. And the first question I have this morning is, what governs our course? What is it that guides us? What is that fixed point that even as we weather the storms and sail the seas of our lives, what is it that governs our course? Now Christ, at the beginning of his prayer, leads into something that he wants his disciples to remember, and that is his glory. He says to his father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. In John 17, you see a Christ, he is he's passionate about his glory. The Father is passionate about his glory. 
And one of the unique things about our God is the way that the Trinity seeks its own glory. It's one of the things that makes our God unique is, is Trinitarian nature. If you actually do a, a comparative study, and I love doing this, comparing to different religions of the world and see what makes our God unique. When you look at Allah, now I love the Arab peoples. Oh my goodness, God has given me a heart. I love North Africans even in particular. Uh, but when we look at Allah as a being, he is described in the Quran as a God of love. And yet, because he is solitary, meaning one individual, it is said that how can he experience or even know love? So Arabic scholars have tried to answer this question by saying that Allah was looking forward to creation in order to love and be loved. Now here's the problem with that, is that if that is the case, then that makes Allah dependent upon the love of his creation to be fully satisfied or to fully realize his character. But because God is Trinity, one God, three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all eternity, they have been loving each other, fully satisfied, the great I am, needing nothing, needing no one. And yet, they, out of an overflow of love, not because they needed us, created us so that we might share in that love that the Trinity has. And because God is inherently self-satisfied, he can give love unconditionally. Whereas Allah's love is very conditional, and you actually see that in Islamic theology. The other thing about our God is that there are many gods that seek their own glory, and you may say, it sounds very self-serving for God to seek his own glory, but only our Trinitarian God, as revealed in John 17, is able to seek his own glory selflessly. Because what does Jesus say? He says here, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. I want glory so I can turn it around and praise you. And the Holy Spirit exists in the background, in the shadows. And he says, I don't even really care if I'm even noticed. I just want to glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify the Father. And the Father can delight in glorifying in the Son. And the Son can point us to the Spirit and recognize that our life is found in Him. And so there's this mutual giving and loving among the Trinity. And you see that the Trinitarian, the highest desire, their highest pursuit right here in the beginning of John 17 is glory, God's glory. What is incredible is that because of the gospel and Christ's work on the cross, that we are invited to participate in that glory. That we're not just, we don't just behold God's glory, but Jesus in John 17 says, I've given my people my glory, that they might enjoy it, participate in it, that they might radiate my glory. When we think about glory, it's such an abstract concept. What does it mean, the glory of God? Well, the glory of God can be found in his person, his Trinitarian nature, his attributes, and also his work, creation, the cross. When we think about his glory in his person, I love studying the character of God and the nature of God because it informs my spiritual understanding even when I pray. You know, I have three children, 11, 8, and 7, boy, girl, boy, and I love them all dearly and equally, but, but daddy's girl has a special place in my heart. And yet when all three of them are trying to talk to me at the same time, 
It's like, which one do I listen to? And I feel like I'm giving a piece of them at one time. And I remember something that was so convicting to me. My son, as we're driving to school, he said, Dad, I feel like when I talk sometimes, you're not really listening because your mind is somewhere else. And I went, oh my goodness, you're right. I'm not giving him the attention that I should. He's not, he doesn't have all of me. Now, they can't have all of me because I am an, a finite being, yet because God is infinite in capacity and nature, expansive without limit, infinite in his being, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere at the same time, Omni, omnipotent, he is all-powerful, and here's maybe a new word for you, omnitemporal, which means that God fully exists with the entirety of his being at every point in time and in every space equally. You say, my goodness, what, the, what did he just say? It means that when you pray, because of who God is, you don't just get a piece of God, you get all of God. That when you pray, you have the attention of the sovereign creator of the universe. His attention is not divvied out among the millions and billions of Christians in heaven and also here on earth. He has the unique capacity to be 100% present with all of his people, all at the same time with all of his being. And when you pray to God, know that he listens. And you don't have a piece of him. You have all of him. That is a glorious aspect of his nature. Now, when we think about glory, the, the manifest glory of God is most clearly seen in Christ. Christ is the manifest glory of God. Now, if, we, if, the, if glory and the glory of God manifested in Christ is front and central for the Trinity, then as we talk about mission, the North Star of missions must necessarily and absolutely be the person of Christ. And one of my biggest heartbreaks and concerns today is in the Christian church and in books and teaching and podcasts and even music, how often the center star, that polar north star, is not Christ, but it's us. It's us. It's about our needs and our own desires and our passions and our own destinies instead of Christ at the center. Listen, missions is the message of Christ. Missions is the message of the cross. And if we're going to be on mission, then it must be about Christ. Now, what motivates you? What are you pursuing? Is it God's glory or your own? Is it Christ's renown or is it your own? What governs your course? Second question, what propels you forward? What propels you forward? You see, ships of the line were propelled by wind. The sails had to be down. They had to be catching the wind. They had to be in the right place, and the wind propelled them forward. What propels us as Christians? We're guided by the North Star, but what propels us is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, at the beginning of the prayer here, says, this is eternal life. It's like he's warning his disciples, don't forget my glory. And by the way, it is only in seeking God's glory that we are, who are created to enjoy that glory will actually find true satisfaction. And then he also says, and don't forget the gospel, eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
What propels us forward? Listen, there are people that are dying, there are people that are starving, and there are people that have needs. But listen, if you make them the impetus of what propels you forward, here's what I will promise you. I've seen it time and time again. People will disappoint you. People will hurt you, and people will frustrate you. And if you are driven, if what propels you is people, you will be disappointed. Then you say, my goodness, what kind of heresy is pastor saying? Are you saying that we don't care about people? No, no, wait, wait for me. I'm talking priorities here. We love Christ, and we are propelled by his gospel. That regardless of whether people receive it, or hear it, or even reject us, the gospel enlivens our hearts. It's what propels us and ignites us and moves us forward. Now, now what is the gospel? The gospel is that there is a God that our God has given us much grace, that though we deserve death, he sent his son to die in our place, and that in that death, our debts are satisfied, that we are made one in Christ. We don't become God, but we get to enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity, and one day we'll be glorified with him. And that gospel, that good news, is not just a ticket that we shelve, a ticket to heaven. No, the gospel is something that we should brush our teeth with every single morning. We should get up in the morning and say, because Jesus Christ died for me, there's no condemnation. Because of who I am in Christ, I don't have to fear. No matter what politics or go on in our country, guess what? I know who's on the throne. Can I get an amen with that? That's good news. Now here Jesus is reminding us that eternal life is not found in a God or even just an ambiguous knowledge of God or just simply in having faith, but rather faith specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and missions is about the glory of God, about his renown, and about proclaiming Christ crucified. Now, in our culture today, we somehow think that in order to reach our culture, we have to negate the gospel. But listen, I've been all over the world, and I am telling you, people are looking for something to hold on to, and don't give them your winsome personality, because you're not good enough. Don't just simply give them food and call it a day, and wash your hands and say, I've done my good deed. Not to say that there aren't wonderful things that we can do in showing people the love of Christ. Our goal in mission is to declare that there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. Now, for some of you, this is basic reminders. For others of you, I hope that we will have a re-stirred heart for the gospel. For churches that love the gospel, churches that are passionate about the gospel, are churches that are going to be the most effective in their local community and around the world. What propels us forward? I mean, for Paul, listen to his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you to the Corinthian church except Christ and him crucified. I want to know who Jesus is and I want to know what he's done. I want to know that more and more every single day. And yet perhaps the knowledge of the gospel has grown stale in our hearts. Have we forgotten from what we have been saved? Have we forgotten what Jesus has done for us? Because the Bible says that we deserved his perfect judicial and even his personal wrath and anger. Now, wrath and anger, 
eternal hell. These are concepts, believe me, that do not sell well in our culture. And from a human standpoint, they don't build churches. But let me walk this out with you. You say, wrath? A God of wrath? If you do not understand his wrath, you will never appreciate his grace. Romans chapter one says that we have transgressed God. There's a specific Greek word that has the idea of of a judicial settled wrath. A wrath is because we've broken his law. Historically in the Western church, we have grabbed onto this side of wrath and rightfully so. The Bible talks about it. We've been justified. We've been made right. We've been forgiven our debts of sin. All very judicial language. Now the Eastern church traditionally and in the Arab world, this, this is a very powerful truth. Not only have we broken his law, but maybe even more importantly, we have personally offended God. That we have dishonored him. We brought shame upon him. Did you know that wrath and justice is inherently what demonstrates the value of that which was violated? Let me illustrate it this way. I told you about my little daughter that I love. If one of you or someone commits the most horrid abomination against that precious little girl and I respond with indifference, what does that communicate about the value that I put in her? You see, my response of justice and a desire of even a righteous anger is my expression of worth in that which was transgressed. The reason that God feels such intense wrath because the father knows that there is nothing more precious than his son and his son has been violated. And the son feels intense wrath because his father has been accosted. And we deserve that wrath. We've offended him personally. That relationship is broken. What hope do we have? Two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God. Ephesians chapter two. We were sinners, we were dead in our transgressions, but here comes the intercession. But God, what? Because we deserved it? No. Simply because he was rich in mercy, he went to the cross, exposed his entire being to death, took that upon himself, absorbed the wrath of God so that our payment might be satisfied and we might be made children of God, not on only merit of that we own, all on the merits of Christ, live with him eternally and enjoy his presence. That is good news. We have a word for a dying world who has no hope. And what are we doing with it? And I'm convinced that many churches are indifferent to mission because they are indifferent to the gospel. We have forgotten the richness of what we've been given. And my hope and prayer is that you would be reminded and be propelled forward and be reminded that the gospel gives us access to God. It gives us fellowship in the Trinity. It allows us to be able to be with God, to see his glory. At the end of John 17, Jesus prays. He says, Father, I want them to see my glory. If you can imagine this, this is the Son of God that looks forward to you coming to heaven. He says, Father, I, I, want the, I can't wait for them to see my glory, to experience the life that I have given them. Listen, eternal life 
is both quantitative and qualitative in, in, the, in the original language. It has a sense of, yes, life without end, days without end, but it's also qualitative, meaning life without scope, life without boundary, that the eternal life that God has given you, that for all of eternity, there is no outer limit to that joy, to that experience, to that happiness that he has granted you. And Jesus says, I just can't wait for them to come to heaven and to see what they've, what they've been given. What's also absolutely astounding to me, and this is something that you should underline in your Bibles, asterisk, verse 23, that a result of the gospel, listen to these words, he's speaking to his father, that you've loved them even as you loved me. Here's Jesus, the son of God, and he says to his father, because of what, God, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, you are not simply loved as a sinner. You need to understand this. But that the love that the Father has for the Son, because you are in Christ, the way that God the Father loves God the Son is the way that God the Father loves you. There is no second tier here. God the Father loves you as if you were Jesus himself because he took your place. It's a love incomprehensible. It's, it's a granting of good news and something that we can never comprehend. Does this gospel enliven your hearts? Or is it cold? And if it is, be honest with yourself. Say, God, I'm just not excited about the cross not excited about the gospel, then pray that he would enliven your heart afresh. Now, to whom do we go? Jesus, in his prayer, is calling us to the world. He recognizes from, as he's praying to his father, that people have been taken out of the world, his disciples, that his people, his church, have been taken out of the world. But there's this peculiar phrase that is used five different times. Jesus talks to his father about those whom he has given that the Father has given to the Son. What is he talking about? It's a glorious thought to think that people are gifts of love between members of the Trinity. That God the Father gives people to the Son. The Son then redeems them and turns them around to glory back to the Father. If you can think of this, that you are a gift of love from the Father to the Son and from the Son back to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is looking to refine you to make that gift back to the Father even more beautiful. Why do we go to people? Because it is in the context of people that God is glorified. It is through people, the, the redemption of people, the obedience of people, that God is preeminently glorified. He's glorified in his creation. He's glorified in many things, but he is particularly and specifically glorified in the redemption of people. And that's why we go to the nations and the need is indeed great. The billions of people that are in Asia that have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who desperately need across North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, the gospel did you know that right now we are living in one of the greatest societal displacements of history? 
with the Arab Springs and Syrian refugees and Iraqis and Iranians not going to the nations, including to our shores. And we may say, my goodness, what a tragedy. But I'm telling you from the point of God's perspective, this is the greatest opportunity for the gospel that we have had in a thousand years. What man means for evil, God uses for good. Look at the cross. And when war happens, we see tragedy, and it is. Don't misunderstand me. But I am saying that in Syria and in North Africa, for over a thousand years, the church has been non-existent, and there have been no gospel witnesses. But because of the great social upheaval, did you know that the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran? Did you know that Iraq has one of the fastest growing Christian populations in Asia and in the Middle East. I was talking with a brother who had just been meeting with some Yazidi women who had been abducted by ISIS, who had been impregnated and sold as slaves, and now they're there with their kids, and he sits down and shares the gospel with them. They all accept Christ, and there is a movement among the Yazidi peoples for the cause of Christ. And though war is horrible, God has in his sovereignty shaken the world and he is bringing people to him through unbelievable means. And if I can say, this is not a political statement, please don't misunderstand me. God is bringing them here. And though we must have laws that govern our nation, it breaks my heart when I see Christians who put their citizenship here above their citizenship in heaven. There was, there was this gentleman, he said, Pastor, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like these Arabs that are, that are moving into my neighborhood. I said, brother, pray for them. Open your heart and just let, let God see them as people. He, he went off in a huff. He came back to me three months later in my church with tears. And he said, Pastor, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to God. And that man, now in his 60s, every single week, is having Arabs over his house. And several of them have come to Jesus because of it. There's an Afghan man that's going to be in heaven because of this man seeing his citizenship primarily in heaven before here. Thank God for this country. But may our freedoms be used to glorify the sun, not to pad our comforts in the American dream. There is a great harvest available. And what are we doing? Right here in Dallas. Do you know how many refugees are coming to your shores right here? To whom do we go? People. If you care about God's glory and you care about the gospel then we must care about people because this is the means by which God is preeminently glorified. Jesus said, I am glorified in them. And as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And people will believe. Here's the gospel confidence. Jesus is praying and said, I am praying for those who will believe in me. The gospel will not return void. We go forward in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven has been given and we can go knowing that there are going to be people redeemed because of your obedience. But what will it require of me? It's not gonna be an easy journey. I'm gonna be honest with you. Jesus says we're not of the world, just as he is not of the world. 
that we'll be persecuted, reviled, we'll be hated, but in the scheme of God, what a blessing to have the approval of God instead of the approval of man. Don't trade the glories of heaven for the porridge of this world, for the scuzz of this world. Blessed are you when people hate you and misunderstand you and revile you. It's not gonna be the popular thing. It's not gonna be the thing that culture tells you to do. Matter of fact, counter to that, instead of realizing self and satisfying self, in order to follow God, we are called to deny self, take up cross, follow God, and it is not natural. That is why we need a community of believers to help us grow, to help us be obedient. It requires sacrifice. When Shackleton went to Antarctica, it required great sacrifice. But there was also great glory and renown to be won. And that may make you ask, will it be worth it? Truly, will it be worth it? What amazes me in John 17 is that Jesus says in verse 13, he's talking to his father and says, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That to be obedient is to experience joy unspeakable, glory unspeakable. Don't trade the joys of heaven for the passing joys of this world, do you not realize that you've been commissioned by the king? So blessed are you that when the king returns, he finds you so doing. We are called to bear his name to the nations, to proclaim his glory, to be propelled by the gospel, to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrender their lives. Will it require self-sacrifice? Yes, it will. But will it all be worth it? On the authority of God himself, I promise you, there will not be one day in heaven that you will spend going, well, I wish I would have spent less time being obedient to the Lord. Follow him. And I pray that whatever bricks and whatever you're building here, whatever you're doing, would you just do it even a little bit more? Surrender your heart just a little bit more. Whether here in Dallas or around the world, you have a name to bear. Bear it with boldness. Pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. May you be honored and glorified in everything that we say and do. And I pray for this church that you would work in a mighty and powerful way and that you would bring a harvest in ways that we could never foresee. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.